Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, who runs Los Angeles? It's not just the mayor, it's not just the city council, and it's not just a handful of rich white guys. Los Angeles is no ordinary city, and its non-traditional cast of power brokers and political players span the socioeconomic and ethnic divides. But who are they? How did they acquire their power? And how do they wield it? Political consultant Kerman Maddox, LA Weekly reporter Dave Zanheiser, political scientist Jaime Regalado, and Los Angeles Magazine writer Jesse Katz visited Zocalo to square off in a raucous and informative discussion of LA's municipal politics, warts and all. This event was recorded before a live audience at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. Here is tonight's moderator, Mario Garza of the Los Angeles Daily News. Well, let's just launch into it, Dave. Tell us who really runs L.A. The only thing worse than agreeing to be on a panel is finding out that you're first on the panel for an impossible-to-answer question. So to prepare myself emotionally, I started doing a sort of exercise over the last week, and I thought, maybe if I just eliminate everybody who doesn't run Los Angeles, at the end I'll get to the person who does. So I started doing this slightly tongue-in-cheek exercise to try and help myself wrap my brain around the idea. So, because you know, L.A. County is 10 million people, 88 cities. I'm not counting Orange County, Riverside County, Ventura County, etc. So it's kind of big. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try and figure it out. In the city of L.A., who runs L.A.? So I thought, well, we're a democracy. The voters. The voters run L.A. So then I started working on it, and I thought, well, how many people voted in the last election? And... Um, <laughs> It was like less than 10%. Even in the uh, really hotly competitive races where the mayor wanted to uh, basically take over the school board, the turnout was nine point something in the valley and six point something in the harbor, and these were the hot races. So I crossed voters off my list. <clears throat> so then I thought, okay, maybe we're in an industry town. Maybe Hollywood. Hollywood could run L.A. So I immediately got on the Huffington Post, and um, I thought... <laughs> I'm going to find out what Hollywood thinks about L.A. And there was all this Obama, Hillary, Giuliani. They weren't talking about L.A. at all. And I think maybe we're a little parochial for Hollywood, which would explain why everybody wet their pants when they saw a crash. So I crossed Hollywood off my list. I was thinking about the mayor, but then I realized if he ran L.A., then would he immediately try to run the school district? So no. So I crossed off the mayor. And so then I was at unions, and I thought, organized labor. They run L.A. We're a labor town. What could be more organized than the L.A. County Federation of Labor? And I thought this was a pretty good one because they're pretty good at picking their candidates. I was a little worried because it made up about a fifth of the actual workers in the county, but I was doing pretty well on this on Easter Sunday when I made the mistake of walking into Walmart in Rosemead. And the gods of economic justice punished me immediately with a flat tire, so don't worry. Uh, <laughs> If you cover City Hall at all, you have a series of rolling existential crises where you cover something that in City Hall seems like the biggest issue ever, and then you walk outside and you find out that no one was listening. 
And so we had a big fight about Walmart supercenters, rightfully so, about wages and supermarket workers. So I go into the Walmart supercenter in Rosemead to buy the new Beyonce DVD. <laughs> you know, she only markets that DVD through Walmart. And it was filled, filled, filled on Easter Sunday, very long lines with folks speaking Spanish, folks speaking Mandarin, because I think it wasn't Cantonese, but don't hold me to it. And I was like, immigrants run Los Angeles, just not in the way we think that they run Los Angeles. It's not like a command and control type thing. It's more like an object in motion stays in motion. And the people keeping the city in motion are immigrants. Foreign-born people make up 36% of the county back in 2000, so who knows what it is now. So what does that mean? Most immigrants show up to a place without a lot of money, which is to say that they're frequently poor. And so what this makes me think about is this. We think about our civic elites, which we'll be talking about tonight, and I think there's a lot of ways in which our civic elites, maybe even as they decide things for the poor, they're kind of running from them too. They tend not to put their kids in public school, though many do. They tend not to ride the bus, though some do. They tend to pick R1 zoning, which means single-family homes, the type of block where... If you even propose an apartment building next to them, they will flip out. And so this explains to me a little bit why if you ride a bus in Los Angeles, you will end up almost certainly having to listen to an infomercial for Total Gym. Have you seen Total Gym, the exercise equipment? And that to me is because I think the policymakers maybe weren't riding the bus. Because if they were, who would ever force people to listen to Total Gym? So immigrants, that's my story. I'm sticking to it till somebody corrects me. Okay, well, that's who doesn't run it, for the most part. But Kerman, what's your take on this? Who runs it? Is it Eli Broad? I don't know if it's Eli Broad, even though he gets a lot of publicity. I mean, and he's certainly on your list, and people talk about him. He gives a lot of money. He certainly is a phone call that everybody takes. But when you really think about the people who get the attention of the mayor and members of the city council, typically it's people who have some sort of a constituency. And I think this being a labor town, I think the L.A. County Federation of Labor, when you think about some of the most powerful entities or special interests, I say labor is certainly at the top of the list. Uh, when you think about one of the most powerful people in this town, I would have to start off with saying Maria Elena Durazo. And not only because she runs the L.A. County Federation of Labor, she happens to be one of these leaders who really kind of understands L.A., and she understands all the different communities that make up Southern California, and she kind of gets a lot of stuff. Latham & Watkins, it's a big, powerful downtown law firm. Uh, they're advocates for a lot of developers, and uh, typically when they take on a client, nine times out of ten, they're going to win. Uh, when they call City Hall, people take their phone calls. Uh, you often hear people talk about developers. Yeah, developers are important, and they play a major role, and sometimes they piss people off because of traffic and gridlock and pollution and all that. But unless you have the advocates who are advocating for the developers, then developers really can't do a whole lot, which is why someone like a Latham and Watkins comes in. You hear the name of a George Milston, a Cindy Stewart, people like that. These are superstar advocates for developers and special interest, and they actually get into rooms and meetings and do things that often regular folks like us can't do. Contributors, yeah, Eli Bro gives a lot of money. Former Mayor Richard Reardon gives a lot of money. There are a lot of people who give significant amounts of money, but do they run the city? Yeah, I'm not sure, but, but what do I know? Tim Laiwiki, very important, Staples Center, L.A. Live, a guy that is very, very important, a guy that everybody takes his phone call, a guy everybody takes his meeting. He's making a lot of things uh, happen in the downtown area. 
religious leaders, as long as they have a constituency, of course people are going to take their phone call because on any given Sunday you have the opportunity to stand in front of 2,500 to maybe 3,000 African Americans in a particular church, and your message gets directly to them unfiltered. So when people like that are calling a city council person in an area of term limits where people are trying to move from the city council to the assembly to the Senate and God knows what, they take those phone calls. So the combination of those folks, I think, contribute to folks that in many ways play a major role in setting public policy, affecting public policy, and frankly, uh, playing a big role in running L.A. I start with Maria Elena Durazo, myself, in terms of a person and an organization that is critical, certainly in the stuff that I think is important with regular people, jobs, wages, development, schools, education, health care, stuff like that. She's a part of all that, so um, I don't know who's at the top of your list that you put together, but I put her at the top, and I think, I think the LA County Federation of Labor is incredibly important in Southern California. Okay. Would you agree, Jaime? I do. I have them on my list, and depending on what kind of mood I wake up in the morning, their first, second, or third, but uh, Maria Elena certainly is, is part of that, and who kind of would have thunk it in a sense, because it was Miguel Contreras who basically developed the LA County Fed beyond where his predecessor, Jim Wood, wanted to take it or was willing to take it. And that meant uh, organizing the unorganized, focusing on immigrant workers, and doing a lot of things at the ballot box that perhaps even Bill Robertson before James Wood was not all that keen on doing. So to follow in Miguel's footsteps was going to be huge, and Maria Elena did that. But the other part of Maria Elena is that she also controls basically the Unite Here operation, so that hasn't uh, totally been laid to somebody else yet, or in other words, she hasn't empowered anybody to a full extent to replace her at Unite Here, and we know that's still a power in the city. It's getting some of the city council members and, of course, the mayor in a little bit, a little bit of trouble with the Chamber of Commerce and with some other business leaders, but I think it's testimony to how powerful this one person is in both the L.A. County Fed, the umbrella for over 100 unions uh, for the county and the city, and in Unite Here, one of the mainstay unions of primarily immigrant workers uh, in Los Angeles. So you have to count that. But within labor, you also have to look at others. Tyrone Freeman has the largest single union membership uh, in the county of Los Angeles. Home health care workers, uh, many thought were unorganizable uh, scarcely uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Ipso facto, translating and fast-forwarding that to 2007, uh, again, he's a power to reckon with not only at the city level but also in the county and uh, in California national politics because he's what he's been able to do in delivering the largest influx of workers into the trade union movement uh, in the last 15, 20 years in Los Angeles. I was just going to quick interrupt you. How does that actually translate into policy, into action, into well, you know, policy is kind of a strange thing. Phone calls, I think you were mentioning phone calls. Who, who does a mayor and the city council or the county board take phone calls from, and who can they delay or who do they never return calls of? If you control a union, your president or general, sec- secretary general, general manager of a union that basically has 40,000 workers uh, and you call a politician, that politician is going to pick up the line. It may not mean you get direct access to the kind of public policy that you're, you're fronting or that you want out there for your workers or for workers in general, but it does mean you have dialogue and you have ears in powerful places. 
So I think the trade union movement has its speakers. It's in disarray to some extent, and that's kind of the ironic twist about this. We know the labor movement nationally it hasn't totally fallen out uh, you know, in Los Angeles, city or county, the same way that it has nationally, but some of the largest unions uh, in the country uh, changing from membership and AFL-CIO to uh, Unite to Win. And we're still trying to understand what that means and what that's going to mean for L.A. County and L.A. city politics. You're listening to Kerman Maddox, Dave Zanheiser, Jaime Regalado, and Jesse Katz with moderator Mariel Garza, all attempting to answer the question, who really runs L.A.? This is Zocalo. Zocalo Radio is available as a free podcast. You can grab the podcast or listen to audio anytime at our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. We now continue our discussion, Who Really Runs L.A.? Jesse. Well, it's a, it's a good thing we did have Maria Elena on our list. But I think one of the things we tried to do at L.A. Magazine was reflect a little bit of the reality that David was talking about in his introduction. And, and that's the sense that L.A. is such a complex, challenging balkanized uh, city, and that to sort of think about power in contemporary Los Angeles, we felt we needed to go beyond sort of the traditional notions of, of the business elite or the civic elite or political elite, and really look at power in all sorts of maybe non-traditional ways, that power has become more uh, democratized, more diversified, certainly more Latinized, uh, and that there's all kinds of spiritual, creative, aesthetic, culinary, nefarious contributions to the city, and that in some ways are are powerful people, I mean, not to minimize the the obvious uh, players and kingmakers and billionaires, but there's artists and activists and bloggers and zealots and troublemakers of all kinds. Can you give us a few examples? um, Especially (laughs) troublemakers. troublemakers. A simple uh, example might be, you know, in the world of media, um, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about the L.A. Times uh, and, and the Chandler family and, and what's going on there right now, but you got somebody like um, Mark Lasanti at, at uh, defamer.com. Basically, he's got a good internet connection, and uh, here's a guy, you know, sitting in his bedroom who's single-handedly has, has invented an online gossip form that all of Hollywood pays attention to and rattles all kinds of cages and, you know, people around the country pay attention to. You know, does he have wealth and and fame? Will people take his calls? I mean, that's one measure of power. But here's a guy who's who doesn't really have any constituency and yet has invented one out of scratch. Well, it sounds like the unions are top in our list for you two. But let's talk about some of the other power centers particularly lobbyists, business interests, such as the uh, Chamber of Commerce, the various Chamber of Commerces, the Central City Associations, and community activists. Where do they fit into this power structure? Does City Hall take their calls? Well, I think so, but what I find interesting is, especially um, when you have major issues in the city where it pits business against labor, uh, the business community will talk a big game, whether it's the Chamber of Commerce, the Central City Association, or others, but they often don't really step up to the table and really take on organized labor. So let's say it's a campaign. Let's say it's living wage or something like that. Organized labor has a history of really putting people out there, raising money, and really running really aggressive campaigns. And at the end of the day, they win. 
So the business community talks a lot, but I haven't seen the business community actively engage in City Hall and try and make the council or the mayor really take more pro-business positions. Now, I could be wrong, mm -hmm. but I've not seen that. They're there. They're there. I don't, I don't know, though. It's weird. I mean, for all the talk about the influence of, of labor, I, I've had a hard time sensing where labor has made real strides in the city in the last two years, and one of the weirdest things to watch involved the sort of the LAX hotel fight, where it sort of seemed like victory was almost snatched from them through its, I'm trying not to go into all the details, but how can I explain this? There was an effort to have a living wage ordinance for hotels around Los Angeles International Airport, and they got what they wanted, and then there was sort of a hasty effort to appease the business community and as a result, they end up with a very complicated, convoluted compromise that ultimately, now that the entire ordinance is in the courts, it could be struck down and it won't even, they won't have ever debated the merits. It will purely have been struck down on a procedural thing. That's a weird sign to me that maybe business does have some more hidden strength that I don't see because labor had it. And it was theirs to lose, and somehow it seemed like it slipped from their grasp. I don't know if other people feel that way, but that, that was very surprising to me. I think labor is one of the powers. Uh, I mean, if I – you cut me off before I was going to do my, my 1,000 points of light. Oh, I'm thought. sorry. Please go. We like Remember light. that? God, I'm that old. I'm that old. Business is certainly vibrant here in L.A. I, I think we talk about labor a lot, especially those of us who have been around for, for a while, in terms of uh, power positions uh, in the 2000s and the, in, in the 1990s in the 1980s, but again, those of us that have been around L.A. for some time or studied it, even if we haven't been here, know that labor in L.A. didn't really mix very well in terms of the halls of power and the halls of influence in City Hall and beyond. We think about the Bradley administration and Bill Robertson, perhaps Ziggy, uh, in the House of Labor in the 1960s when things started to change. But really, from the 1950s and 40s and 30s and 20s, uh, the, you know, the L.A. Times and other downtown powers were really adamant uh, that labor was not going to have a foothold in the city. And so when we talk, and, and they were very successful at that, uh, using a lot of different means. So I think it's a common assumption now that labor is strong politically, perhaps is stronger depending on the battle it picks and the policy issue in front of us. Uh, chances are it'll win in a battle, especially if the other side is uh, kind of disorganized and weak. But it hasn't always been like that. So I, I think we started off with that because it's kind of uh, a predominant power in the city right now. But business is equal, equal to the challenge. It's just that we don't have the Central City Association representing a conglomerate of 25 business interests that basically ran the city in the 1950s and 40s and 30s. We have disparate business uh, centers of power. We want to do it on a geographic basis, whether it's downtown L.A., whether it's Westwood and the West Side, whether uh, it's in the San Fernando Valley. Nobody really wanted to talk about the valley, but uh, we have to get there as well. So labor, business, we also talk about the philanthropic community. In fact, one that uh, the California Endowment helps to fund the Socalo. Bob Ross is one of the uh, visionary leaders in the philanthropic community in, in California. He's president and CEO of the California Endowment. It does a lot of investing and what I consider to be forward and progressive-looking uh, uh, public policy. But he knows, uh, as do others like Gary Yates at the California Wellness Foundation, Elise Buick, one of the rising stars, uh, 
the relatively new president uh, of the Greater uh, LA United Way, kind of get that they need collaborators. And so when we talk about power, of course, you start maybe with labor, business, kind of traditional powers vying against each other. But you also talk about the philanthropic community who is important. And where I think you were going, I'll let others chime in on this, but community nonprofits and community leaders also have a stake here. And there are some that get their calls answered immediately. I mean, Kerman and others. Maybe about five others. Well, mine don't get returned, but let me tell you, Connie Rice, if you want to talk about someone who is an activist, someone who is obviously fighting for a lot of people who are disadvantaged, and someone who gets a meeting and gets her phone calls returned, uh, she might be one of the smartest people I've ever met. Connie Rice works for the NAACP Advancement Project, and she is one of these people who tackles the tough, gritty issues that most people want to ignore or hope to go away, gang violence. Mm-hmm. She was contracted by the city to do a report. She did a report. It was in Tony Cardinal's committee for a long time. It's going to go before the full city council in a couple of weeks. And what she's trying to do is get the mayor and the city attorney and the council and sheriff and everybody to figure out a way to get one entity or one individual with some power to do something about this issue of gang violence that everyone hopes goes away. But it's not going away. We're in 2007. We have more gangs now than we did back in the 80s when Daryl Gates did Operation Hammer. We're locking people up. It's not making a difference. We're doing everything other than prevention intervention. It's not making a difference. So here's someone who's talking about one of those real significant issues. And again, although she might not be at the top of the list, but when she calls, people take her phone call and they take her meeting because she's a powerful force. And a lot of it has to do with just her sheer intellect and her ability, and she is so connected with so many communities. So I don't know if I call her a a nonprofit entity or a civil rights activist. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where she falls, but she's on your list as well, and I'm really glad to see that. But she is just a force that is just unbelievable. And, again, she is dealing with some of those real gritty, tough issues that a lot of folks just don't want to deal with in the city. You're listening to Kerman Maddox, Dave Zanheiser, Jaime Regalado, and Jesse Katz with Mariel Garza as we examine who really runs L.A. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. If you like Zocalo Radio, check out Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. On June 1st, radio personality Adam Carolla visits Zocalo for a lively, irreverent, and possibly shocking conversation with the L.A. Times' Megan Dom. This event at the Skirball Cultural Center is free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. In a moment, we continue our search for Who Really Runs L.A.? Stay tuned to Zocalo. KPCC reaches a large, active, intelligent audience. To learn how your organization or business can reach that audience, call 213-621-3592. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We now rejoin Kermit Maddox, Dave Zanheiser, Jaime Regalado, and Jesse Katz with moderator Mariel Garza as we examine who really runs L.A. Kermit, I have to ask you, forgive me, 
the other list, the LA Times list of the uh, the kitchen cabinet of the mayor. You're one of the the people. I Damn right. Say. And yeah, you, <laughs> but you say your calls aren't answered. No. I don't know if I believe that. Tell us. Well, the only upside of that is I've gotten a lot of free lunches. My phone calls are being returned by a lot of people, and so I thank the LA Times for that. Now, the downside is there are a lot of very interesting people out there who I'm just going to say have some just wacky ideas. And so what happens is I'm getting a lot of phone calls and emails from folks who say, hey, I got this great idea. Can you set up a meeting with the mayor? You know, I'm not going to sit here. You know, it was so nice. not taking your it's calls flatter. anymore. Not taking my calls saying. anymore. <laughs> not on that list anymore. Look, I've known him for a while. He's a smart guy. He doesn't need advice from anybody. He's got great instincts. He's very smart. The thing that I like about him and is he gets it. He's just not a politician who is charismatic and hardworking. He understands his community. He understands the city. He understands the African-American community in a way many African-Americans don't understand that community. So here's a guy who kind of gets the whole thing. When they had the immigration marches last year that caught a lot of people off guard, a lot of people were very uncomfortable, and clearly there's some Latino African-American tensions. Some of us had a chance to meet and talk with him, and he understands it. He's not one of these guys who sits, listens, takes notes, and says, uh-huh, I'll do it. I mean, he gets it. I mean, he's really a guy who gets it. I mean, you might remember, there's a guy who's a member of my church, First Emmy, who went to high school with Antonio. Tony Villaraigosa co-founded the Black Student Union in high school. I mean, come on, how many Latinos co-found the Black Student Union? I mean, really, how many African Americans co-found Mecha? I mean, that's a different kind of guy. So he doesn't need advice from me or anybody else, but, you know, we like to see our friends doing well. And he's the guy that really kind of gets it, and I'm just happy he's the mayor. Okay. And I love those free lunches. <laughs> Javi, I'm glad you brought up the historical aspect of power structures in L.A. because it's really changed from mm-hmm. the uh, Committee of 25, which essentially ran the city for decades and decades. Does any of that structure relate to the current structure of politics in Los Angeles? And, and what's up with the Civic Alliance? Well, it, it bears a, just a slight resemblance because you don't have basically 25 white men controlling uh, their businesses or corporations, making virtually all the important decisions for the city, as for a long time had been happening. We started to see that unravel uh, in the 1960s, and even before Bradley uh, became mayor in uh, the early part of the 70s under under, uh, Norris Paulson. Demographic shifts and plant closures, other things were happening, the growth of... uh, of industry and especially businesses on the west side and as I mentioned San Fernando Valley especially with auto plants and so on and so forth. It doesn't mean that white males still don't uh, have a preponderance of power especially selected white males in in the downtown core but it does mean they have to share a lot. One of the things that's absent, uh, absent in downtown that existed when the committee of 25 was around was a lot of corporate headquarters that were in in downtown and we don't see many of that uh, or any of that anymore. It doesn't mean that AT&T is not powerful here, or Wells Fargo or WAMU are not powerful here, but they don't happen to have their headquarters here, and there's a certain kind of allegiance and alliance that one tends to have with the city, a special advantage one has with the city if your headquarters is in that, is in that hometown. But I think what we're all saying is power has dispersed tremendously over the last uh, 40 years, not only in terms of sectors, bringing labor and the philanthropic community and the fourth estate, which some of us called community nonprofits in, and leaders like Stuart Quo in addition to Connie, but as well, uh, we've seen it spread more diverse, uh, not nearly enough. 
but more diverse in terms of racial and ethnic stakeholders as well who have some impact, who have some influence on policy in both the city and the county of Los Angeles. So it's not your grandfather's, grandmother's Los Angeles, I said that before, uh, any longer. Is power still too tightly controlled? I think it is. But it's much more dispersed than it had been 40 or 50 years ago. Well, there's some people who say that it's not uh, 25 rich white men who run the city. It's 25 Latinos who run the city now. Is that, is that true? Depends on which part of the city we're looking at. I think if we were looking at lobbyists, I'd still say it's about 21 out of 25 rich white men. When it comes to the political power, then I'd say we're shifting more toward uh, Latino majority type activity. I think it's a little hard to say because there's so much there's so much fragmentation on so many levels. This is a city where, you know, Filipino voters are a significant block in certain council districts. Everything is the something community. The city probably has the risotto community that gets together and makes risotto. Everything is so micro, 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 you know. I think it's very I think the problem I'm having is power it's sort of everywhere and nowhere now. I mean, it was like what Jesse said, referring to the bloggers. They're separate real estate blogs just for L.A., you know, or political blogs or other things. Is there ever going to be a center again of civic conversation? You know, you asked about the Civic Alliance, which is this sort of loose group of 24, 25 civic people. I don't think they're anything like the Committee of 25, 25 because I don't think that they have any real raw power as a collective body. I think they're more of a conversation mosh pit or something. I think what that type of a group was yearning for is a community-wide conversation. I mean, I have great respect for one of the people who covered City Hall for about three years from the Korea Times. I have no idea what he was saying. And that's sort of the weird balkanization. I mean, he's a good guy, and I heard his questions. I know he's no dummy. But, I mean, I couldn't I couldn't know what the competition was writing in some cases. And I think that's why defining power now is so difficult. Well, that's a good segue into the neighborhood councils, the poor, beleaguered neighborhood councils. (laughs) Um, They were set up to have, to empower the neighborhoods. Have they done that, or have they made it worse? Kerman, you want to talk about that? Well, um, I haven't noticed that because of the advent of neighborhood councils, government is either closer to the people or more effective, or they're doing a better job of representing the interest of those people in those communities. In fact, I've talked to a lot of people who say the last place they want to go and take their issue is before their local neighborhood council because they argue the neighborhood councils are dealing with issues that are not at all related to what's going on in their communities. Now, obviously, you hear other arguments in some areas, but I'm just not sure at this particular tick of the watch that neighborhood councils are what we envision them to be. In many cases, you have people who are very well-intentioned, good-hearted, but they're trying to run for office. I mean, so you have this additional bureaucracy. But I will say in City Hall, the council members listen. They want to know because in many cases they want to say on an issue, have you checked with the neighborhood council? So they do have some power. They certainly get people's attention. But I guess it depends on what geographic area you are. Some tend to be a little bit more effective than the others. But I just haven't noticed that City Hall is more effective as a result. Can I just add on to one of the comments uh, he made about the lobbies? Yeah, there's no diversity in lobbies. Let me just say this. There might be diversity in a lot of the other things we're talking about. But when you go down to City Hall or the county Board of Supervisors, 
It's white men in suits. I mean, they're coming down, they're nameless, they're faceless, they're advocates, and they're doing their thing. There's not a lot of diversity in terms of the advocates and the lobbyists who are representing the moneyed and the special interests. Now, when you talk about Latino political power, obviously it's growing. The Speaker of the California Assembly, Fabian Nunez, the mayor, Maria, the council, goes on and on. Whether that translates into as a lot of real power, per se, I'm just not sure. And the balkanization that he talks about is creating a lot of problems. I mentioned to you when we're in the back, there are things that are going on in the Asian community, the Latino community, the African-American community, and we often don't communicate with each other unless there's a conflict. Uh, There are eight newspapers that represent the greater Southern California African-American community. Most people know about the Sentinel, Mm -hmm. but they don't know about any of the others. You know, and there are other newspapers, so everybody kind of talks to each other and they cover their own respective communities. But I don't know that there's anyone who's doing a very good job of covering this region. I pick up the L.A. Times, nothing against the L.A. Times. I don't have a sense what's going on in this region. I read it, I put it down, but I don't have a clue as to, wow, I wonder what's going on in the region and communities. Now, if there's controversy, they're all over it. But absent controversy, I don't know that there's any publication, per se, that effectively covers what goes on in this region. One of the categories that we created in our, in our uh, list in LA Magazine, uh, we called it En Español, with the recognition that the Spanish-speaking universe is, is just a huge part of reality in Los Angeles. And there was some internal debate as to whether this was a, a good thing or not to separate that out from mainstream media or were we somehow ghettoizing uh, the Spanish-speaking uh, media. It was more than media. And I think ultimately we decided there is, uh, in some ways, this, this kind of parallel universe that exists that if you're a non-Spanish speaker, you may be completely oblivious to, but if you operate in the Spanish-speaking world, Piolin or El Cucuy, as we know from the, the marches last year, have you know, wield a tremendous influence and, and clout in terms of getting people out on the streets. Haim Saban went from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers to buying Univision. Univision is the, not just the number one Spanish language broadcaster in America, but you know, it's often the most watched uh, network right here in Los Angeles. If you look at the, the Nielsen ratings you know, every year for the, for the local TV sets, five out of five or seven out of the ten most watched programs in L.A. are Betty La Fea. There's a reality that exists there that's very potent, but sometimes, as Kerman said, it, it, it remains segregated. Did I mention, by the way, that Beyonce sings the theme to the new tel- Telemundo novella, Zorro? Sorry. <laughs> Good to Just know. wanted to bring that up. Oh, can I answer the neighborhood council question? You can. Go ahead. Sorry. I think that neighborhood councils are one of the meanest things that the city of L.A. ever did to homeowner groups, neighborhood activists, nonprofit groups, because what they did was they basically told all these folks who were actually advocating on issues, whatever the issue was, and told them to go create their own bureaucracy from scratch. (laughs) And what they did was they said, create your own bureaucracy, create your own government, by the way, with no money, come up with some bylaws. We think a good number for you guys to be inclusive might be uh, 30 board members. Who wants to serve on a 30-member board? Are they insane? You know, so I think there are a lot of people who are really, I mean, they're crazy people too, but a lot of good people who are on neighborhood councils who 
they're just, I think they're stuck on a certain level. I mean, I know of really effective neighborhood councils, and I know of very ineffective ones. And generally, the reason why they have power, and this has been mentioned, is because certain council members invest them with that power, because it's all advisory. And so there are certain council members who say, I trust you, you tell me that you want this, I will do this. There are others who say, no, 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 these are just quasi-homeowner groups. They don't have legitimacy with me. And so they're still dependent on the power of the elected. I always feel slightly bad for them. And the funny thing is they're dealing with all the other micro-communities because then they have the L.A. There's the animal rescue community that comes to their meetings or the mountain bike community that comes to their meetings. Every other micro-community is coming to their micro-community. Okay, I'm done now. (laughs) Thank you. You're listening to Jaime Regalado, Dave Zanheiser, Kerman Maddox, and Jesse Katz with Mariel Garza as they attempt to answer the question, who really runs L.A.? This is Zocalo. For more engaging and timely conversations, click on and tune in Zocalo Radio in the coming weeks as we bring you environmentalist Paul Hawken on how the largest movement in the world came into being and why no one saw it coming, author Drew Gladney on China's challenge from ethnic minority groups, and Michael Schlitt on the L.A. salon scene turning the living room into a lively discussion room. That's all coming up on Zocalo Radio. More information is at our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We now return to Who Really Runs L.A.? I wanted to ask each of you, if you can think of one, who, who would be the most unlikely power holder in the city? Person or group? One that you might not suspect. I can tell you one of the one of the stranger choices we put on, on our list, which might get some groans. There's a, a woman named Paige Adams Geller, and uh, she is a, a fit model for the denim industry. And basically, her butt has launched a million pairs of blue jeans. But it's more than just sort of a superficial um, question, because in fact, you know, Los Angeles is the world's capital of blue jean manufacturing and it's a huge industry with with enormous clout and we stumbled across this one model who now has her own line of jeans but but in fact uh, she has been her derriere has been the the ideal for every denim designer in los angeles for the last decade or so interesting (laughs) who knew you asked (laughs) dave i would pick jane blumenfeld who is in the city planning department. Raise your hand if you know Jane. Anyone? Oh, very nice. Is she in the audience? No. Jane is interesting to me because she's not Gail Goldberg, who's the head of the planning department, but she is the person who has found ways to slowly reshape zoning in the city of L.A. So, for example, this is way micro, but she was a person who came up with the policy of allowing affordable housing to go denser than it already was being allowed on uh, major boulevards. For example, she, I believe, did... All you Jane fans can correct me. I believe she was one of the people who worked on the RAS zoning, which is sort of the mixed-use zoning, to put commercial at the ground floor and residential up above. And that happened about three years ago, and almost nobody noticed. It was the weirdest thing. And that's a really big deal because that zoning has the sort of potential... You remember the big fight over Prop U back in the 80s? Mm -hmm. 
over floor area ratio, which nobody understands because I think it involves geometry. But it, the idea was <laughs> allowing things to be bigger in terms of zoning. That's as good as I can do. And Xavier Oslavsky, the county supervisor now, but the councilman then, fought to sort of limit a certain amount of density. And I think, if I grasp it correctly, and it's geometry, so bear with me, but I think that this sort of mixed-use type zoning allowed the buildings to go back up again if they could get the zoning. And it's a very interesting concept that's going to start reshaping the city and already is. Herman, any candidates? Yeah, there's a uh, candidate by the name of uh, Reverend Clyde and He runs a small church in uh, Lemur Park. And typically when you think of African-American churches, you think of First ME Church, West Angeles, Faithful Central. These are the mega churches in the African-American community with 15,000 members and up. Doc Oden probably has a couple hundred members, but he is such an, such an activist, and he's involved in a lot of the issues, those gritty issues, again, that I like to talk about, uh, race relations, gang violence, public safety issues, and he has really been able to create a lot of energy amongst his congregation, and his church is being sought out. The mayor, Al Sharpton, Barack Obama. I mean, I was told the other day when they're talking about church visits, they say, hey, we've heard about this guy, Clyde Oden. So small church, but he's got incredible energy, and he's certainly making a name for himself, not only in the African-American community, but kind of making his name for himself in City Hall and other places because people are starting to pay attention to what he's doing with a very, very small but active congregation. And his energy is just infectious. So I would not have expected him to be the kind of person that people were talking about as the way in the way that they are uh, at City Hall and outside of City Hall. Tommy? Yeah, finally, me. Uh, so I, I'm not sure that I bring up the rear guard in this, but uh, a f- friend of mine who was in the labor movement for 40 years, a guy named Dave Sickler, some of you know him, some of you have heard of him, was invited by Antonio to have a seat on the Board of Public Works. And Dave uh, obviously accepted that, a very powerful position, a labor seat. He followed somebody who had been in that seat, appointed of Han. And a lot of us were concerned. I mean, you said something earlier, I think it was, it was you're saying it in jest, that the mayor doesn't need advisors. He really does need advisors. It's impossible to govern a city uh, the size of L.A. and not need good advisors and at least eight votes in the city council. We worried about Dave. A lot of us worried about Dave, and we worried about the, where uh, a certain portion of the labor movement would be without him. But it was more that we were concerned that he may get lost in bureaucracy. And that uh, thing he used to do with immigrant communities, uh, being a white guy from Colorado but progressive and who got it, got to L.A. a long time ago, would kind of be lost to us. But uh, in his stint as a powerful member of that board of public works and as one of the juice commissions uh, in the city, as you know. He has proved not only to do a great job there, but also as a special advisor to the mayor on labor issues without portfolio. So he's become, not that we doubted or I doubted his abilities to do a good job, but when you go to work for the city or county or the feds or the state in a bureaucracy, sometimes you can get lost. And we're worried about that quality of uh, perhaps that he would be lost. But he's turned out to be a real internal power for the mayor and for the city. Speaking of unlikely casts of characters in the power uh, structure, in the L.A. Magazine list, Jesse, you list Ruben Castro, 
leader in the Mexican mafia on the list. How did he make the list of powerful people in Los Angeles, and how does he wield that power? One of our more popular selections. Well, the question of gangs is obviously, for better or worse, and as we know mostly for worse, but uh, part of the you know social fabric of Los Angeles. And when you think of the history of gangs in L.A. and uh, Bloods and Crips going back to the early 70s and Latino gangs going back to the World War II era and before, I mean, you have gangs from from geographic neighborhoods that have identified with that community for 40, 50, 60, 70 years in a city that's thought to have no memory and no history. In some ways, gangs are really among our most stable social institutions. <laughs> is that a, is that a controversial statement? They obviously cause great instability, but they have a they have a way of surviving and uh, significantly a, a way of adapting. I mean, one one thing that's happened with uh, this particular selection, he was um, in, locked up in Colorado Supermax prison, uh, which is called the Alcatraz of the of the Rockies, in a soundproof windowless cell, and he was getting messages out, tiny little pen marks with uh, pencil hatchings on top, and those messages were taxing the drug sales of a couple gangs west of downtown to the tune of about half a million dollars a year. Wow. So do the gangs indirectly or directly influence policy? Um, That's Connie Rice. <laughs> you know, gangs have a, a, an incredible adaptability. I mean, the Marta Salvatrucha, the, the big Salvadoran gang, is, you know, in some ways the first kind of super immigrant gang that has, you know, sort of established its presence here even larger gang, 18th Street. Um, I hope I don't have to throw down with anybody in the reception <laughs> afterwards for, for going in this direction. But, you know, one of their, their sort of their evil genius qualities was that they, they were the first old-time Chicano gang to allow uh, Central Americans and undocumented immigrants into that gang, recognizing, like, you know, any group looking for a constituency, that that's where the future was. And they began to morph and adapt and, uh, you know, became the, the biggest gang in Los Angeles and, you know, probably the, the world. They were collaborative. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I mean, Connie Rice doesn't have a gang study commissioned by the city council <laughs> if gangs obviously weren't, weren't an issue here. And, and, and it's an issue that everybody in City Hall is talking about. And it's, and it's been around for a long time. We know that. But it's the first time where it seems like the council and the mayor and everybody's trying to figure this out. The chief of police, the sheriff, the county. People are trying to figure out a way where the city and the county can collaboratively work together to do something about this issue of gang violence because it's not going away. And some of the hot spots. We can talk about gangs in a vacuum, but for those people who are familiar with certain communities in East L.A. or South L.A., some of the hot spots are just completely out of control. It's anarchy. And if you can't get to some of these hot spots and allow kids to at least get up in the morning and go to school and return home, as fundamental as that sounds, you think you got a problem now. It's only going to get worse. So the hot spots, which is what Connie talks about, is something we're trying to get people to really focus on and see if you can make a difference. And that's why I said earlier when I when you talk about power and influence, there are a number of people we can talk about, but the people that I think have influence and access to resources and who are trying to do something about it are the people that I would put at the top. And that's why I mentioned Maria Lane again. Less about labor, but just her influence and her access to resources and what she can do. You often hear people, young people say, look, if I had a job or an opportunity, I'd do it. You know, that's true in some cases. In some cases, people like being thugs. They just do. 
I mean, they like the power that comes with it and all the other things. But there are certain people who are saying, you know, I'd like an opportunity. And so you have someone like uh, Maria, Elena, and others who are working behind the scenes with a David Sickler, who I agree, that's a, that's a very good selection, who are really trying to do a lot of things and help those people who really are trying to improve their lot. You're listening to Jesse Katz, Kerman Maddox, Dave Zanheiser, and Jaime Regalado with Mariel Garza, tackling the big question, who really runs L.A.? This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Up next, the audience weighs in on tonight's topic. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Next time on Latino USA, think Central America, and you don't necessarily think African culture. But we'll open up your ears to the Afro-Caribbean music of the Garifuna people of Central America. That's this week on Latino USA, Sunday evening at 10 on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We've asked our panelists to answer the tough question, who really runs L.A.? Now it's the Zocalo audience's turn to ask the questions of our panelists, Kerman Maddox, Dave Zanheiser, Jaime Regalado, and Jesse Katz. This is possibly a question that should have been asked earlier on, but what do you mean when you say run L.A.? Uh, question for you, Marielle. Oh, I guess, I guess <laughs> we I'm all wonder around. That. <laughs> uh, well, that's a good question. Who runs LA? When you're talking about running LA, it's about affecting policy, about indirectly, if you're a gang, directing policy, or directly lobbying the mayor, calling up the mayor, and getting something done. So that's what we mean about who runs LA, since it's such a diverse community with so many different um, power elements. You can't really say that one person or one one group of people runs L.A. So that's what I mean. I hope it answers your question. I took the challenge to mean who's most influential on the policy docket, so to speak. And even at that, uh, if we each were to come up with a list, uh, like my friend here, we probably would disagree on three-fourths of the list. So it's kind of an amorphous question. I decided it was going to be kind of fun doing it. I hope it was fun for you. I mean, maybe not. But I want to recognize somebody. You talked about Connie Rice and the Advancement Project and the hot spots geographically in the city. Well, the person on Connie's team happens to be a good friend of mine. He's in the audience who did the geographic coding and really isolated the hot spots is Dr. Ali Maderis right over there. He's embarrassed, but uh, he did a great job of that. And I point that out because if the city council does nothing else... You know, starting with the card in this committee, but focus on one aspect of Connie's report, and they might focus on three, who knows. Geographic coding of hotspots is going to be uh, the one. I just wanted to ask you, where are some of the hotspots uh, for gang activity in L.A.? Well, uh, if you looked at Connie's report, if you look at some of the housing projects in and around Nickerson Gardens, Jordan Downs, places like that, those are really tough spots. The Hyde Park community in South L.A. Uh, historically is an area where the Rolling 60s Crips are pretty um, predominant. 
The areas around the housing projects, which is Southeast Division of LAPD, are just almost ungovernable and almost out of control. The gangs have a real strong influence there. They're tough gangs. They're heavily armed. Uh, and they're just firmly entrenched. He talked about generations. You're talking about people who have been a part of this culture for years and years and years. And when you talk about the Watts community, it's not an area that's bursting with economic opportunity. It's not an area where the schools are churning out academic scholars and things like that. So there are there are so many things going on, but that is one of the areas where I think the gentleman would probably agree that's one of the hottest of the hot spots. It's, really have to throw in Boyle Heights and part of East L.A. The, just the armor. I mean, it, you know, for people who don't follow, the artillery that some of the guys have down there, they, the, the cops are, they're, it's not even close. They're completely undermanned as they're trying to work in that area. It's a, it's a incredibly hot spot. If I can just dive in for a second, I, I just finished up a project. I've spent the last five months uh, doing a profile of the academic decathlon team at Jordan High School in Watts, mm-hmm. uh, which will be in the um, in the May issue of LA Magazine. Jordan High School, I basically followed the, the brightest kids from this high school uh, going up in competition against more affluent, uh, middle-class parts of L.A., uh, but they share a fence with Jordan Downs, and, you know, I don't want to stigmatize the good people that are in Jordan Downs, but it is out of control, and it's extraordinary that 2,000 high school kids are expected to focus on their futures and imagining, you know, something greater uh, for themselves when just that daily walk in and out of that campus uh, and knowing that this, this threat exists truly, you know, right across, right the, across the street. It's a tough, tough community. Just really quickly, I wanted to say that study with the hotspots were indicated conveniently in red also had a number of areas that were cool spots that were actually green and that were going down. And one of the questions that was asked when that report was unveiled was, why are the green spots green? And the answer was, they need another study because they don't know the answer as to why the green spots were getting greener or the, you know, the red spots were getting redder. I just wanted to Add that little bit of nuance. Oh, you color-coded it. That was nice. <laughs> you touched on an interesting uh, subject at the beginning. You alluded to it when you talked about developers and actually who runs L.A. My question is, I'd like to know if you, and David, you've been writing a great deal about this, if you could perhaps begin to connect the dots as to why leaders in the city do answer certain people's phone calls And are they connected to the campaign contributions that perhaps some of these people make to those that are running the city of Los Angeles? I once had a politician tell me that basically once he got the money, he remembered that person because he got the money. I don't know that everybody feels that way because the L.A. system is a very strange system. It has uh, campaign contribution limits. And what those limits do is you're supposed to give only $500 per campaign for a council cycle or $1,000 per campaign for a citywide mayor, city controller, city attorney type seat. So you won't, you know, so you can have a situation where a politician receives $1,000 and has virtually no knowledge of that contribution or that contributor if they're in a frenetic campaign. They will remember the lobbyist who held the event to get $50,000 worth of people to the city club. And the area where this starts to get troublesome, I mean, I, I have done nothing but dot connecting for, like, years. And I think that contributors 
sometimes are a reflection of something. They're a reflection of how close people are, right? It's not necessarily that the politician will make the decision because they got the money, but you'll know how close they are to a particular developer or lobbyist because they got the money. What I find is there's sort of an oh-my-God factor to certain size contributions. And the area where this has gotten so interesting is in um, the ballot committees and, more recently, the school board campaign. And, I mean, talk about power. Right now, the battle for power has been the arena is LA Unified. That's the battle for power. And so, for example, you have had the mayor who wants certain candidates to be on the school board he has raised from some developers six-figure contributions. And I don't know that that means, oh, my gosh, he's going to go out and approve a 39-story condo tower for Westfield shopping mall owner, which gave him $100,000. I don't know that. I know that it's $100,000, and I know when I speak to people who are dealing with Westfield in either the Valley or in Century City, there is a $100,000 that you don't hear when people may have gotten $1,000 or $5,000 or $20,000. I think it's more complex than simply, oh, a politician you know, supports a project because they, they received a contribution. It's more a reflection of just how close the relationships are. And I think it's so funny because there was this big fight over Prop R, which was the whole campaign was based on we're going to keep lobbyists you know, out of City Hall, which everyone in City Hall knew to be just a colossal joke because even if they were barred from writing checks, there's nothing to keep them from putting together a breakfast for 25 people or 50 people or 100 people. And I think that that proximity is the thing that gives some people the queasies who follow development. I guess the answer is yes, right? (laughs) Jesse Katz mentioned troublemakers I wonder if he or any of the panel would like to comment on the ultimate troublemakers, John and Ken, and more broadly, the power of talk radio. I had an alternate answer for who runs L.A. because a friend of mine who happens to be in the audience was telling me, well, real estate runs L.A. And I said, yeah, but then who runs real estate? And the answer I got was, well, hucksters. And then I started thinking, maybe hucksters really do run L.A. You know, hucksters sell anything, and whether it's good for you or not, we are a city with a great and terrible tradition of hucksters, some of whom I love. Sister Amy Semple McPherson of the Angelus Temple, quite a huckster. In a way, El Cucuy and Piolin are hucksters. I mean, what other city could create a two-hour movie based entirely on torture and make people pay to watch it? Hollywood, Saws 1, 2, and 3. So... <laughs> You know, this is a city that knows how to repackage anything and make it look glittery, even if it's a turd. And so I think that that's one of our great legacies as a city. And, and, I mean, and not to say that they're turds. I don't think that at all. I just think you can sell anything in this town in any way and make a buck. Anybody else want to take that on? I think that's the final word. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> You've been listening to Kerman Maddox, Dave Zanheiser, Jaime Regalado, and Jesse Katz answering questions from the Zocalo audience at a recently recorded event as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. 
Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marco Stromer. Thanks for listening. Looking for some ideas?